Just a heads up, this episode of Place and Sound contains profanity. She used to jokingly call it Chirac. Why, why would you call it that? I would call it Chirac because in Iraq there's a lot of war and a lot of gun violence and a lot of just like violence and crime. I mean, it's not really much different here in Chicago. Anywhere you go in the country today, you have to watch your front and back all the time. It don't matter if you're in California, <laughs> Chicago, New York, a small town in Ohio, doesn't matter. Tell people beware, downtown is not the easiest to live. Hey, it's Anthony Valadez. You're listening to episode two of Place and Sound, where we're exploring the past, present, and future of music in Chicago. Last time, we took a trip through Chicago's early music history, learning how the Great Migration brought jazz and blues to the city in the early 20th century, which in turn fostered continuous cycles of creativity that never went away. Now, we still have a lot of ground to cover, connecting all those threads to the present, But before we talk about more music, I want to explore a paradox that I've been thinking about since I began this journey. Because while Chance the Rapper has brought some positive attention to Chicago, the city has another less flattering reputation as a place with a lot of problems. On Chicago's south side, gun violence is the soundtrack to these streets. This city has had a summer of senseless violence. Also broke overnight. Five people were shot. It's been a record year in the city of Chicago, and for all the wrong reasons, the murder rate has never been higher. For an outsider like myself, when Chicago makes it on the evening news, it's most often from reports of crime, gang violence, and murder largely taking place in the South Side, the same culturally rich area where jazz, blues, and gospel left their marks and where many of today's breakout hip-hop artists grew up. For better or for worse, hip-hop, as well as television and movies like Spike Lee's Chirac, have amplified this image and brought attention to the seemingly permanent crisis. Here's a clip from May of 2018. There's been an alarming surge of gun violence in America's third largest city, Chicago. More than 50 people have been shot in the past seven days. At least five have died. From the mayor's office to the governor's mansion, Chicago's elected officials, folks who are tasked with solving the city's problems, are routinely exposed as some of the most corrupt in the United States. A new report from the University of Illinois at Chicago says the Chicago metro area is ranking as the most corrupt city in the country. That corruption and the mismanagement that comes with it has created some terrible situations. The Chicago School Board has just voted to close 49 schools. The district says it needs to close schools to address a looming $1 billion deficit and declining enrollment. It is the largest mass public school closing in U.S. history. Why is crime and corruption such a problem in Chicago? What is life really like for people who live there? And is the current hip-hop renaissance a product of these specific problems or a success in spite of them? Put your left foot in front of your right foot and walk with me Through the city of Shy, where the vultures be Have you heard of the city crime? Sociologists be telling me the city died From all the murder and gangbanging and drug dealing Every 30 hours they find another body with some slugs in them That was Chicago rapper D.A. Smart with his 1997 song, Walk With Me. To better understand the challenges and realities that Chicago faces, I wanted to talk to a public official responsible for representing the city. 
My name is Cam Buckner. I am a native Chicagoan, born and raised on the far south side of the city, currently living in the near south side in the Bronzeville community. I have spent my career in community engagement, community development, politics, government. I'm an attorney by trade who has spent some time working on uh, the federal and municipal levels. Currently, I am a state representative representing the 26th district of Illinois in the Illinois House of Representatives. You're only 33? Yeah, 33. What have I done with my life? (laughs) Cam is an optimist, but growing up on the South Side, his life has been repeatedly shaped by Chicago's long history of violence. Between high school and college, you've lost 14 friends and family to gun violence? Yeah, and it has been a very prevalent piece of my life and my existence. Classmates and and teammates and cousins who have fallen victim to gun violence has been a real thing. And it touches home in a real impactful way. But I think the problem with when you look at some of the numbers that, that you see from a violence standpoint is that we look at the violence as the issue when it really, I think, is a symptom mm-hmm. of larger problems. I think those problems are socioeconomic. I think those problems are based on breakdowns of, of families. So what exactly makes Chicago stand out as a murder capital? If you look at the murder numbers, right, you know, they've hovered between 400 and 600 for the last, you know, let's call it five to 10 years. Growing up here in the 90s, most people would be hard-pressed to believe this, but the numbers were much more. There were years during the time that the Bulls were winning championships that we flirted with, you know, a thousand murders a year. And back then, Chicago did not seem dangerous to us who lived here, even though the numbers would have told you different. To prove his point, Cam reminds me that it wasn't that long ago that Los Angeles had the same reputation Chicago does today. We would look at Long Beach and Compton and South Central as the epitome of a violent American city. I think this is the importance of music, right? Growing up in the 90s, as I told you, we were listening to Death Row and folks like that. Chicago has an organic gang culture from Al Capone on to Larry Hoover, right? I mean, it's just who the city has been. But we looked at folks in L.A. It was like, you know, it's crazy out there. It's because we were getting it through the music. Growing up in L.A., in the time Cam's talking about, I can specifically remember there were certain areas we always avoided. Ice Cube warned America about South Central prior to the L.A. riots. The notorious B.I.G. was killed just 20 minutes away from where we are recording this podcast. And through his music, Dr. Dre told us you never knew what might go down at the Century Club. It's California love. It's California Got your boy a king of pub. I'm on one. I might bell up in the Century Club with my jeans on and my team strong. I mean, growing up, we, we thought L.A. was crazy. We thought yeah. it was so dangerous. And I mean, there's a lot of what I think people think about Chicago nowadays. While we're on the topic of perception, I asked State Representative Cam for his take on the term Chirac. So I'm, I'm a realist, right? And I understand why there are folks who don't like that term. I believe that term came from some statistics that kids were more likely to, you know, be gunned down than they were in parts of Baghdad. They used to call us in the 90s, this was before Chirac, Beirut by the lake. And we've got to not be sensitive about the, the verbiage, but we need to be more sensitive about our kids. The fact of the matter is that there are kids in this city dying at an alarming rate and that kids should not be buried by their parents. Running away, I got demons hunting me. I know pop with 25, I know Jesus 33. That was Saba with his song Life. It doesn't take much research to learn about one ugly part of Chicago's history, which has had a toxic and lingering effect on the city's struggles. 
That factor is Chicago's extreme history of racial and economic segregation. My name is Cindy Soto, and I'm the Director of Outreach and Engagement at the Cook County Assessor's Office. A Chicago native and the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants, Cindy has worked as a political aide to Senator Dick Durbin and Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth. Segregation in Chicago, when we talk about those things, we often are reminded of senior daily and the creation of highways and how they were so distinctly placed across the city to keep neighborhoods away from one another, to keep certain populations away from one another. And he continued that trend for many years that it's just been the hardest thing to dismantle. It affected our education system, housing, access to good jobs, access to transportation. And so to this day, that continues to be something that haunts the city of Chicago. Cindy explains the drastic differences between Chicago's different neighborhoods and the people who live in them. Now, like I said, in some places, if you find little bubbles of cultural beauty, it's wonderful, you know, but a lot of the times that cultural beauty was created because we were pushed into these communities and limited as to where we can go and build our lives. So in the Gold Coast of Chicago, all the fancy homes, nobody can live there, but it's predominantly white, right? West side of Chicago, predominantly black, Latino. Logan Square was just like a big bubble of a lot of different cultures. A lot of it was very intentional by the leadership in Chicago. Here's Ren Graves from Consequence of Sound, who you met in episode one. So Chicago is very segregated, and there are a lot of socioeconomic issues that stem from that segregation. One of the key factors behind Chicago's racial and economic segregation is an old idea known as redlining. During the New Deal in the 1930s, the Homeowners Lending Corporation was tasked by the federal government with restoring faith in lending operations from banks to different neighborhoods. And the way they went about this was purposefully racist and caused a lot of problems. The idea was they were going to do these maps that would be a handy guide for people who were going to offer financial services. And the maps would show you whether an area was generally high risk or low risk. And they drew red lines around poor white neighborhoods and almost every black neighborhood. It had disastrous consequences for the city for many, many years. And now you have whole communities that are totally cut off from financial services. Now you can't get a mortgage, even if you would be a good candidate because of where you live. Now you can't get loans to start your small businesses, right? And so we basically mark out on a line that this area is a ghetto, and then we make it so. Among many other devastating consequences, these government-created ghettos have had a continuous impact on the Chicago school system, which gets its funding largely through property taxes. This means that the schools located in redline neighborhoods, where residents are poor and property values are low, are stuck in a constant state of underfunding. For another example of Chicago's history of racism and segregation, a 2019 study by Duke University and the University of Illinois estimates that in the 1950s and 60s, black families in Chicago's south and west sides were cheated of between three and four billion dollars in wealth due to predatory housing contracts designed to bankrupt them and keep them in poor neighborhoods. In the same period, the Chicago Housing Authority built some of the largest high-rise public housing projects in the nation, which concentrated the extreme poor in superblocks that were not easily patrolled by police and became a breeding ground for crime. 
shoot the gift on their radio station. Shed blindness, the thin spine I roll down the back of a city overgrown and overtaxed. The wax hands of the rich pick a thin pockets bare and scatter. The skeletons of cultures with the rent control. That was Thin Red Line by Chicago underground hip hop legends, Typical Cats. So what are the first-hand consequences to all these problems? What happens to people in Chicago's most vulnerable communities when government institutions fail and the system is built to keep you down? In researching the different elements of Chicago hip-hop, I came across an artist by the name of Tay 600. Tay is a 22-year-old drill rapper and former gang member from Chicago's South Side. For those who don't know, drill rap is basically Chicago's version of trap music. Here's his 2019 song, Red Light. Yeah, what's your body count? Put your ass on CNN. If I ever see the eyes, then we won't meet again. Uh, shoot his face and he gon' fly just like he Peter Pan. Uh, two got 40s on my lap, you wanna see the twins. Niggas that used to sit with me, bet they can't have a seat again. Let that fuck nigga eat off my plate, but he won't eat again. More than his music, what most interests me about Tay is his story, which is a textbook worst-case scenario for any kid growing up in Chicago. We meet up in an empty apartment in the south side with no furniture and the curtains are drawn. Tay explains the circumstances that pushed him into gang life. Out here, you jump in the streets early, 12, 13. My first gun case, I was like 13, 14 years old. Already told bangers, you feel me? So it was like, my mama, she was working real hard to like make sure we had a roof over our heads. She was a single parent taking care of kids that's coming up in age. Our shoes getting bigger, everything costing more. She got to work harder. And do double, you feel me? Because my daddy was in jail. Kind of drove me towards the streets, you feel me? And I'm an only boy, so it's like, we street dudes, you feel me? And these was like my brothers, you feel what I'm saying? So it's like a lot of the love that people look for, they find it in the streets. Before the age of 13, Tay was initiated into the 600 subset of the Black Disciples, a notorious Chicago gang dating back to the 1960s. In Tay's mind, his best chance for survival was to commit to the gang life completely. Me, how I look at this game banking shit is a lot of people die just for being associated with people. So if I'm going to associate myself with some people, I'm going to go all in because if you die for being an associate, it's really like you die for nothing. Tay will be the first to tell you that he's no saint. He's got a rap sheet, mostly gun charges. We got a different mentality in the streets. We like to say drill music make you want to kill somebody. And it does because that's our mentality. We get too hype, but we want to shoot a motherfucker. Even more chilling than Tay's casual description of violence is the danger he feels every day walking outside his front door. I go to some niggas' hoods and these niggas walking around outside and they flip-flops with their headphones in. Like, whoa, I ain't never been that comfortable in the hood. Never. I gotta have running shoes. No music is playing. I don't even need a distraction on the block because like, they killed my first homie that fast. It's kind of hard to not feel for this guy. At 22 years old, he spent years of his life in jail. He's been exposed to more violence than many real soldiers. Born into public housing, dad in prison, mom working double time. I do believe Tay has tried to make the best out of his circumstances. I asked Tay 600 if he can go back in time. What would he tell his 13-year-old self? When I was 13, I was making a lot of decisions based off right then and there. What I tell myself now, slow down. You got to think about the future. You feel me? I grew up with big homies and shit. They don't tell you that you can go to jail and spend the rest of your life in jail for this shit. They just put a lot of this shit in your hand and they glorify it as if it's like this the shit you want to rest your life for. When niggas start going to jail, it's like, whoa, what the fuck? I lost my first dead homie. It was Baldy. You feel me? It was like, 
I was young as hell, man. I was fucking 14, 13 or some shit. And I'm like, damn, bro. Like, when I got that call and it was like, man, bro, they just, fools just got shot in his head. They talking about he dead. You feel me? I'm what? Like, I'm too young to be having dead friends. You feel me? Like, that shit wild as hell. We pop out at your party, I'm with the gang, and it's gonna be a robbery, so tuck your chain, I'm a killer girl, I'm sorry, but I can't change, we ain't aiming for your body, shots hit your brain, we come from poverty, man, we ain't have a thing, it's a lot of animosity, but they won't say my name, them killers rock with me, little nigga, don't get banged. That Chicago rapper, Polo G, with his 2019 Billboard hit, Pop Out. I hope you're enjoying Place and Sound. If you like what you hear and you want to see us exploring other cities, then follow or subscribe to Place and Sound wherever you listen to podcasts. We recommend TuneIn for the best experience. To hear my full-length conversations with Chicago artists like Raven Linnae or Knox Fortune, along with more in-depth interviews with some of today's most interesting artists, search TuneIn Conversation, available only on the TuneIn app. So obviously, Chicago has some challenges to confront as a city, but it also has a profound amount of prosperity and a thriving community of artists. So it also has to be doing something right. There are lots of reasons to be optimistic. For one thing, the city just elected its first African-American female mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who's also openly gay. While Chicagoans, who have earned the right to be skeptical, are anxiously waiting to see her bring meaningful relief and change to the city's pressing problems, she seems as poised as anyone to do so. No doubt, some hard choices will have to be made, and none of this is going to be easy. But we will do the hard work with transparency, integrity, and a determination to put our pensions on a path of true solvency and make our government work more efficiently without balancing our budgets on the backs of working class and poor families in Chicago. In spite of its struggles, Chicago is very much an optimistic place. I asked Cam Buckner about Chicago's positive legacy. Growing up as an African-American kid in this town, there was a real sense of ownership when you look at folks like Michael Jordan, when you look at folks like Barack Obama, when you look at folks like Oprah, right, who came here and made this place their home. Those three people in particular who weren't from here originally, right, who came, who had to make it to Chicago in order to touch the world. That is what Chicago symbolizes to me and, and always has. Umi Grigsby is a public interest attorney by day and a hip-hop blogger by night. It's so hard to talk about Chicago and not talk about Obama because I think it was a ta Coates essay that was just like, when Obama was president, Chicago had this mystique about it, right? It was like, this is his home base. And so everyone was kind of thinking about the positive aspects of Chicago. You know, Gwendolyn Brooks is from here. Like, a lot of people that you don't necessarily, like, connect with Chicago. It's, like, underappreciated when you come to art. If you think about Common, Kanye West, Chance... Lupe Fiasco, like, and Twisted, like, all these people that people have, like, put out from this place, or people who have come here from all around the country to kind of, like, learn from Chicago and use Chicago as a base. While some might criticize many rappers' portrayals of street life and violence as harmful to Chicago's reputation, in Umi's eyes, these artists are reflecting the unjust circumstances they come from. 
Like, I feel like the city is really underappreciated because a lot of times all we talk about is violence in Chicago, segregation in Chicago. And these are all, like, valid issues that should be addressed. But I would say that it's survival, right? When you look at and you hear where a lot of people came from and the circumstances that they came from, if you look at, like, the historical efforts that have been made to, like, specifically target black and brown people in this city, the fact that people are able to overcome that and make a national mark, I think is impressive. I think that it's this ability to, to translate pain into something that can be articulated and approached by other people. Who can you count on these days in 2017? Lil nigga, big city, bigger dreams. I copped the house out in the hills just to switch scenes. And now they back home saying, how could Vic leave? I got Chicago on my mind like I'm Ray Charles. Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. That's Vic Mensa on his 2017 song, Didn't I? One thing that I've heard repeatedly credited for the success of Chicago's young artists is the city's after-school programs. I'm Kevin Koval, and I'm a poet, an educator, a cultural organizer in the city. I run a youth poetry festival called Louder Than a Bomb, the Chicago Youth Poetry Festival. I'm the artistic director at Young Chicago Authors, and uh, yeah, I've been around. Kevin is an OG in Chicago's artistic circles. He recently published a collection of poetry titled A People's History of Chicago, and he mentored Chance and No Name when they were first developing the rhymes. Kevin breaks down for me the critical importance of after-school programs like the ones he organizes. I think that space is at a premium in a city like Chicago that continues to criminalize the movements of young people of color. To have a space that is maybe outside of the gaze and that long arm of institutionalized criminalization and racism, to have a space where you can be yourself and be free and cut up with your homies and then maybe also explore an artistic path is invaluable. In the face of institutional forces working against them, these programs have emerged to aid some of Chicago's most vulnerable citizens, and they've succeeded. Chicago has, in the last 20 years or so, been lucky to have educators, artists, organizers, and students carve out that space despite the city's insistence that those spaces don't exist. And I mean that literally, that, you know, when we started a youth poetry festival, Louder Than a Bomb, in 2001, and we did it in a moment where the city of Chicago was trying to pass an anti-gang loitering law that was locking up young people of color for hanging out in groups of more than one. And so, you know, quite literally, if you are a young person of color in a particular neighborhood, you can be sent to prison for hanging out with your cousin on your grandma's stoop. In addition to protecting the youth of Chicago and creating a creative outlet for them, these programs and the activists behind them have empowered the next generation to rise up and break down barriers that have divided Chicago since the redlining of the 1930s. In resistance to the draconian kinds of laws that Chicago legislature folk have tried to pass, I think that there's been a movement from cultural workers to create spaces that were antagonistic to that dominant idea. And I think hip-hop youth culture in Chicago has benefited from the creation of those spaces. And so I think we've seen that over these last 10, 15 years in this current generation of Chicago hip-hop makers. We've seen that they have had, for the first time in Chicago's hip-hop history, a unfettered access to one another across the city in a city that is bent 
and regulated on redlined urban planning, gerrymandering, and the rigidity of forced segregation. And it hasn't just been the musicians who have been empowered. I'm really inspired by like young adults. I feel like they are fearless. <laughs> they know how to organize, you know, with the Chicago chapter of Black Lives Matter, No Cop Academy. I mean, they build a movement and they build it strong. And I have hope that they, you know, they're going to continue that and they're going to hold us adults accountable and they're going to push us to do the right things. After decades of segregation and suppression, it sounds like the youth of Chicago might be breaking the structures that have been keeping their communities down. I'm originally Liberian, so I'm, I'm from a country that like, has been torn apart by war and like tribal warfare. And I feel like people tell their children stories about bad situations that they've been in, whether it's interacting with police, whether it's going to the north side, whether it's going to a traditional white area when you're a black or brown person. And one thing I'm happy to see, I think, with like newer or younger artists is that there doesn't seem to be that limit. Whatever neighborhood is yours, you're going to make sure that you let people know that's your neighborhood. But I feel like people aren't like confined to, to certain spaces. That was Mercury Rising by The Mind, featuring Nico Segal and Sylvie Grace. Okay, let's recap. So what's up with Chicago? There's no doubt it has some big problems, and it's still trying to solve them. But these problems aren't unique to the Windy City. When I look at these stats, Baltimore, Detroit, and St. Louis have higher murder rates. Cleveland, Oakland, and Milwaukee have an even higher violent crime rate. Big problems happen when you're the third largest city in the country. Trust me, I know, I'm from Los Angeles. And more than any of those other cities, no disrespect to Cleveland, Chicago has a profound output of influential thinkers, creators, and leaders. Like America as a whole, Chicago is a place of contradictions, exemplifying the very worst and the very best of what a city can be. From segregation and violence to game-changing artists, athletes, and the first black president of the United States. Even its hip-hop is contradictory, from the brutality of drill to the gospel of Kanye and Chance. In spite of, and because of its problems, the city breeds a vibrant fighting spirit. I asked Cam Buckner and Kevin Koval for their final thoughts on the spirit of Chicago. Uh, grit. You know, I think that the city has a dogged determination that you don't find in a bunch of places. While it has its issues with economics and race and violence, it is one of the most welcoming cities, I think, on the earth. I think Chicago breeds a very expressive and determined type of person. I think you see it in our art. I think you see it in our music. I think you see it in our politics. It has, for a very long time, been the place that the downtrodden have come to to pull themselves up and to create their own place in society. I think that Chicago's narrative around the planet is problematic. I think it is a commercial for the prison industrial complex. And I think that that's intentional to make Chicago a space where primarily people of color are not to be trusted with their own bodies and within their own communities. And I think that Chicago is a source of inspiration because 
working people have fought very hard here and have won hard-fought victories here despite the robber barons and the capitalists who own the town. This is the home of the Haymarket Martyrs. This is the home of the abuelitas and, and, and mothers in Little Village who went on a hunger strike and made a social justice high school for their children. This is a town of Ida B. Wells and Lucy Parsons and Gwendolyn Brooks and Sandra Cisneros and Rudy Lozano and Harold Washington and Jane Addams and Studs Terkel and Nelson Algren and all of these people who have made a life out of resistance to the norm. And so I think Chicago really is about, you know, the, the, the giant imagination that maybe is in contrast to the normal workings bureaucracy of the everyday world, but in order to throw a monkey wrench in some ways in the way that the normal world runs and operates in order to create a more just and, and fair society for, for, for all people. That was Common with B. Next time on Place in Sound, we're looking at Chicago music in the 80s and 90s, exploring how house, juke, indie rock, and hip-hop help lay the groundwork for the vibrant scene we see today. Place in Sound is created by TuneIn and hosted by yours truly, Anthony Valadez. Our executive producer is Charles Raggio. The podcast is written by Ryan Pinkert and produced by Jenner Pesqua. Sound engineered and edited by Kevin Kurugian, with additional support from Frank Espar and Andrew Broadhead. <laughs>